0: Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. I'm Adam Bob. And we hope that you've been loving the interviews on our show over the past few weeks because we've had a lot of laughs and learnings and the odd tear or two along the way.
1: Look, it's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster, but with a lot of learnings and a lot of laughs as well. Uh, the whole purpose of First Act is to inspire you with the stories of Australia's most fascinating people in business and life. We unpack the realities behind success from the seed of a great idea to the mountains climbed to reach a game-changing goal. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and give us a review. Five stars, of course, in Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify. Now, Sess, tell me why I should give a crap about today's guest. (laughs)
0: Now, our next guest is not afraid of a bit of poo humour. In fact, he launched a brand off the back of it. Simon Griffiths is the co-founder of Who Gives a Crap, a social enterprise that donates 50% of its profits to charities. Now, Simon's taken toilet paper, a product that everybody needs, and turned it into a business that helps people in need. Who Gives a Prep has donated millions of dollars since its launch, and Simon is on a mission to make sure everyone in the world has access to toilets and safe drinking water by 2050. It's a lofty ambition, and he's well on his way to achieving it. Simon, welcome to First Act.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here.
1: Now, it's great to have you on the line today, Simon. Uh, We're going to start with what we call our first act, icebreaker. So your icebreaker question for today is, what is the crappiest gift you've ever received and what did you do with it?
2: (laughs) The crappiest gift I've ever received? Um, Oh, I mean, um, (laughs) I don't know, actually. This is a really tricky one. Um, I think uh, maybe the... I don't know if it's the crappiest gift, but my um, this year for Father's Day, I've got a, a six-year-old, and at school they have all these stalls that um, you can sort of buy different uh, monetary vouchers for your kids. And I didn't know about this, and my my partner organised, um, yeah, some some vouchers for my son, and so he got me these gifts, and they were. Absolutely adorable, you know. One was um, surf wax because I I surf, <laughs> and mm-hmm. another was a a mug with Dad written on it uh, with some some hot chocolate that came with it. Um, but the I think the funny thing was that the the mug was just a very um, you know basic mug, and they'd stuck um, these layers of stickers onto it. And so um, I didn't realize, uh, and I put it in the dishwasher, and then the stickers all came off. And so it ended up being. <laughs> A bit of a crappy gift, but uh, very endearing and you know super cute at the same time. So um, yeah, that's that's what first came to mind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is that's not a crap gift and it's not a crap answer either. So we'll be we'll take it.
0: All right, Simon. Now you run a social enterprise, so with social justice and making an impact, were those values instilled in you when you were growing up? Like, what's your earliest memory of giving a crap?
2: Um, yeah, honestly, they, they weren't really like I, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a business person when I grew up. Um, and so I was that kid at school that, you know, sold stuff to, to the other kids at school, whether that was, um, you know, sandboards that I was making in my backyard because we lived in Western Australia and, and there's lots of sand dunes, um, or, you know, trying to pet sit the neighbor's pets when they're away for holidays and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I I loved the idea of business, but I felt a little bit icky and gross about the actual kind of transaction, the exchanging of, you know, money for goods and services, just something about it didn't kind of quite feel right. Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, much later on in life, after I'd gone through university and discovered that um, there was this part of economics that I really liked called development economics, which was really around, you know, how you um, shift the the level of um kind of um i mean in economic terms you'd call it utility or the well-being of the individuals how you can shift that using micro and macroeconomic frameworks um which sounds super technical and boring but es- essentially <laughs> is about you know how you create social mobility for people that are born in different parts of the world or even you know different suburbs within the same country um and for me that was really fascinating because it it started to to show um you know, how uh, an individual could make a, a ton of difference by thinking about things in the right way. Um, and so when I finished university, I, I sort of wanted to combine my love of, you know, of making businesses and, and transactions and innovation also with this passion around um, around how to make people's lives better. And it was bringing those two things together um, with, you know, a string of businesses that that was ultimately when I realised that, I was doing, you know, the thing that felt right, and and that having um, a, a social outcome turned what was previously an icky transaction in a in a business into one that was actually something that felt really good, uh, and so everything kind of clicked into place, and that's sort of what I spent the next, you know, decade of my life kind of working on bring to life, and eventually, who gives a crap kind of came out of the the pipeline of ideas that were bring to life.
0: So. You were um, selected to take part in an incubator on social enterprise uh, when you first kind of started your social entrepreneurship journey. What do you think you learned about mm-hmm. aligning purpose and business from that time? And I should mention that was you went overseas to do that. You're in Colorado.
2: Yeah. So we we won a spot at um, what was called the Unreasonable Institute at that point in time. And it was a, a social business incubator that helped you take something from an idea through to an executable concept. Um, they, you know, to help make that happen, they brought in 50 mentors from all around the world who were, you know, experts in various fields. So we had, you know, someone that had run a, a kind of quite a large, um, supermarket chain in the U S we had one of the very senior marketers from Coca-Cola. We had probably one of, you know, the, the best sort of, um, high impact philanthropists in the world, in the poverty alleviation space, you know, as three of the different mentors, as well as someone who came from a design thinking background, um, and the person from the design thinking background ended up becoming one of our founders because we sort of gelled so well and, and got on so well. I think one of the big things that sort of came out of that for me was um, this realisation that that what we were trying to do was actually closer to a startup, which which now seems kind of you know, like it makes total sense. But, but in 2010, the idea that we could borrow from the playbook of technology startups and use um, a relatively well-trodden path around how to pitch an idea, how to draw up interest in it, and then you know think about um, potential for equity funding rounds and how to use um, option plans to incentivize staff. I think it was this really eye-opening moment that actually we had the toolkit of a, a traditional for-profit business available to us and we could use that and make it even better by adding in the, the social impact and by donating our profits at the same time. Um, and so that was the big kind of breakthrough takeaway moment. And so I think we came back from... Uh, 10 weeks there with um you know, armed with this toolkit that that enabled us to um you know get the idea off the ground just so much faster
1: that's so interesting what you were saying just then about that startup mentality and i should say that Koshy's business builders as an outlet we have a sister publication called startup daily and what we see in the startup sector from that tech startup world there's a lot of those principles being applied to you know to to product businesses as well like your like your own where it's just going you know having that that idea and being able to treat it with that same uh, you know, kind of like pitching for funding and all that kind of thing. There's a lot more of that going on. Can you just walk us a little bit through the that seed of
2: like the aha moment with who gives a crap? Uh, so we, we had the idea when we went to the incubator, but it was actually for a non-profit toilet paper company. And so I think the, you know, the, the, um, not the playbook, but the, the people that we were talking to about it probably had more of an interest in the nonprofit sector than they did in the, you know, technology sector. Mm. Uh, and the big realization was that, you know, actually, um, donating a hundred percent of our profits was probably not the best way to, to generate impacts. If we were truly trying to have the most impact possible, we should, we should reinvest some of those profits back into the business to help fund its growth and to, to change the status from nonprofit to for-profit. But, but still, make it clear to our customers that the reason why we exist is to try and solve the sanitation problem by donating, you know, a very significant proportion of our profits. But by doing that, we enabled the business to be able to sell equity in the future to create, um, you know, equity incentive plans for staff members, which can be part of compensation packages, um, and also solve this cash flow problem that happens in businesses where you're donating 100% of your profits every year, which, um, you know, you often don't have 100% of your profit sitting in the bank account at the end of the year. And so you need to fund that donation from somewhere, which often means taking on, you know, more and more debt and making the business less stable as it gets bigger and bigger. Um, and so, you know, one of the, yeah, the, the big realizations was that actually by changing the, the model from being a pure nonprofit into this profit-for-purpose business model, which I think we were kind of, you know, really... Early pioneers in in that space, that we could start to use that same toolkit that had been tried and tested by you know, many technology companies that had come before us. But I mean, this was twenty ten. So you know, like um, when I was in Silicon Valley on that trip, I met Travis from from Uber, who was just getting started with a black cab company that um, you know had like six taxis, I think, in San Francisco. Oh my god! <laughs> it was a very different time, and so. Um, you know, the the technology playbook was was really getting started. This idea of testing and learning was relatively new and you know isn't the kind of same mantra that, that it is today. So it was a really different, you know, a different era. The internet looked very different. Platforms like Shopify didn't exist, Alibaba wasn't a thing, you know, it was it was a very different version of the world to where we are, you know, twelve years later. <laughs>
0: So you mentioned uh, funding, and and you initially crowdsourced uh, who gives a crap on Indiegogo. Like, can you tell us a bit about that campaign? Because I remember at the time it involved a live stream of you sitting on a toilet.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, the the kind of backstory there is that um, you know we after we had the idea and we'd we'd um, figured out how to bring it to life, we knew that we had to. Sort of test and learn our way through whether this could be something that could be successful. And so, the first test was actually setting up an online store on a, a platform called Shopify in in twenty ten. That was a pretty fledgling little e commerce startup that you know now I think probably is a household name, but but back then um, no one had ever heard of it before. And we set up our own kind of e commerce store. We went to the supermarket, bought someone else's toilet paper, and then we used our like hundred dollar AdWords credit from from Google. Um, that came free with our Shopify store to direct uh, Google search traffic to our store to see if we could sell who gives a crap toilet paper that donated half of its profits. Um, We learned within four hours that people would buy who gives a crap toilet paper online um, and that, um, that, you know, the business model could work. Um, Something that we found out was that it cost us, you know, $54 to ship our first box of toilet paper to our first customer. So Ah. we had to figure out the logistics if we were going to be successful ongoing, but, but, you know, we validated that the the concept could work if we could make the logistics work. And so the crowdfunding campaign was actually about getting, you know, as many eyeballs as we could to see if there was enough interest in what we were doing to, to, you know, really warrant investing the next five, 10 plus years of our life into the concept. Um, And so we ended up, you know, we shot our, our initial crowdfunding campaign um, that my co-founder Jay Han and I wrote the script for, we watched the video and we thought, yeah, like it's kind of, it's okay, but it's sort of missing something. And then we ended up, um, you know, finding, a, a some very smart marketing people to help us work on the campaign to, to try and make it better than what we could ourselves. And the special source, you know, was, was not just creating a, a higher production value kind of piece of footage, but the special source was, um, at the 11th hour saying, you know, I think we need to film this with you sitting on a toilet and you pledge to not get off that toilet until you've pre-sold the first (laughs) 50,000 worth of products. And so, you know, the campaign went live, I think at 6am on a Tuesday with me sitting on a toilet in, you know, what looked like it was our warehouse. And, uh, we honestly weren't sure how long I'd, I'd be there, but we live streamed, um, you know, the whole thing. And this was again in 2012, like the, the share button had just appeared on Facebook. Um, and so the way that, you know, the way that the internet was working um, sort of played into the way that the campaign was designed to create something that was both newsworthy and shareable and had a limited amount of time to it. Um, and so it just sort of went viral incredibly quickly. We know, we got picked up by national television in Australia, national print in Australia. I think we did 2.5 million social media impressions. We got embedded onto the homepage of the largest Latin American newspaper in the world in Brazil. And we strangely popular in Greece and we're still not exactly sure why. <laughs> um, but after 50 of the most horrible, never, ever to be repeated hours of my life, we hit <laughs> that sales target and uh, and we were in business, which was a pretty amazing outcome. That's pretty amazing to think it's been 10
1: years since that moment. You know, yeah. it, you talk about it like it was yesterday, but at the same time, like you, it was a different climate, you know, it was a, the internet
2: was different. Uh, yeah. I mean, things are different. Like Instagram didn't exist. You know, that's like it's a, it was, it's been a... The last decade has been quite wild when you take a step back and think about the shifts that we've seen in consumer technology, but also in the way that brands get built and brought to market. And I think, you know, our business is kind of a testament to that, that who gives a crap could not have existed 20 years ago. You know, we needed the internet to be at the point that it was to enable us to bypass supermarkets and to reach our customers directly. Um, and so, you know, it was the right idea, but but also very much at the right time in terms of the the technology that was available at that point in time as well.
0: So you mentioned there were millions of views of that video. How much did it actually assist in the the fundraising?
2: Did yeah, so so we ended up um, you know generating uh, you know the the full the full pre sales amount that we needed to get started, which was amazing. Um, but probably more importantly, it gave us our first one thousand customers. So. So yes, we needed the money, but if we had gone and ordered, you know, 50,000 rolls of toilet paper and we didn't have the customers to take that off our hands, that was going to be a huge problem because it would have, you know, literally filled the share house that I was living in from floor to ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, the first 1,000 customers was kind of a critical piece of the puzzle. And then I think, you know, 70 to 80% of those ended up coming back and ordering from us again. They went on and told their friends and family and work colleagues about what we were doing. And so for the first two years of the business, we were just growing organically on word of mouth, roughly tripling the size of the business each year for those first two years. And so honestly, we never thought, you know, we were the the world's first online toilet paper company before the term direct consumer existed. We never thought people would buy toilet paper online. We always thought that supermarkets would be the path to scale but in those first few months of, you know, shipping our first orders out, we realized there was just way more interest in an online toilet paper company than what we ever thought was possible. Um, and so, you know, after those first two years tripling the business each year, we knew that we just had to focus on online and get that right. And then, you know, at some point in the future, supermarkets would be, um, the next correct strategy for us, but, the the digital world had plenty of runway and and that was the right place for us to be focusing.
1: So kind of looking at your, one of the the reasons why Who Gives a Crap is so successful is that you have a lot of fun with your brand and it's really part of your brand DNA right from the get-go. There are very few brands out there that genuinely can bring that kind of irreverence to the table, especially legacy brands. Um, So it's, it's something about, you know, being able to start a new brand that you can kind of do that what advice do you have for anyone listening about, you know, getting noticed with that kind of cheeky approach without it feeling like you're forcing
2: it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a, um, using humor. There's a very fine line, you know, and, um, we sort of say that the dirtiest thing that you'll ever hear us say is our brand name. So we don't want to be icky or disgusting or gross in any of our communications because the dirtiest thing that you'll ever hear us say is, is the word crap. Um, and so you have to tread a fine line to make sure that you don't overstep and that, you know, end up as a result turning people away. Um, but I think what we learned really early on was that in our category where all of the big incumbent brands had been built on, you know, these um, bizarre marketing kind of pillars of puppies, pillows, feathers, things that are completely unrelated <laughs> to the, the toilets and toilet paper we realized that having a sense of humor was actually enough to be disruptive. And it was a marketing territory that all of the other brands couldn't go after because they'd built their brands on, you know, the exact opposite of that. And so not only did it give us an edge, it gave us an edge that was defensible, that that we thought we could, um, you know, really turn into a strong kind of brand positioning. Um, and so the, you know, the beauty of Who Gives a Crap was was in part that, we could go and use a product related to the to the social problem we were trying to solve to help raise funds, to you know, help build toilets for people and provide access to sanitation. But the other part of it was that the way that we could market the brand was a, a territory that no other company could go after. And so it's kind of been the combination of, of being able to solve a social problem with a product that's related to it and then actually talking about what the product's used for in our marketing that, um, you know, brings it all together and creates something that is truly special.
0: Mm. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that as well, that consumer driven philanthropy that is so much about, um, a big part of your brand. How do you get consumers to care enough about what you're doing to invest in buying who gives a crap rather than grabbing a toilet roll off the shelf in a supermarket?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean the, I think the first part of that question is that, um, we're not asking them to invest. We're just asking them to change where they're purchasing from. So, so a big part of that early on was that we said, you know, if we, if we're going to be a mainstream brand, which I think we have to be, if we're going to help 2 billion people get access to sanitation for the first time, you know, we have to be in millions and millions of houses, hundreds of millions of houses around the world. The only way that we can do that is if we sell a product that is of equal or better quality at a price point that is the same or less than what people are buying from supermarkets. And so that's really what we've focused on um, with our Australian product. I think sometimes people look at the cost of one of our roles and say it costs twice as much without realizing that we also put twice as much product on our roles. And so you know, the cost per sheet or the cost per use is actually the same as what you're getting or less than what you're getting at a supermarket, which is an important part of the proposition. Um, And so I think, you know, we've always said it has to, the concept has to be able to stand up by itself and be successful by itself. And then if it is, we can layer on the social impact piece and make that an extra part of what we do as a brand and as an organization to um, help, help kind of build a stronger connection to our product and our brand and, and what we're really trying to bring into the world. And so, you know, the initial reason that people will buy our product is often not because of the, you know, 50% of profits that we donate. It's because they love the packaging or the ease of home delivery, or, you know, they're, they're making it an eco-conscious switch to a product that's um, more sustainable. And then over time, we get to educate them around the sanitation problem and where the money goes and why it's so important, which is a harder story to tell. Um, and that's kind of what we think about as being the hero's journey, where we get to to take them on the hero's journey and, and hopefully get them to their third or fourth order where they start to know a lot more about us. And then a, as a result, a, you know, a much deeper kind of have a deeper brand affinity for for the company. There's quite a lot of research
1: and it comes fairly regularly. There are reports that come out about consumer behavior and and brand values and how people are, it's becoming increasingly important that and an increasingly large factor of why people are aligning with a certain brand is because of its values and what it represents. So I think, you know, who gives a crap? You, you donate 50% of uh, your profits to charities. That's a that's a really compelling proposition for people. How did you land on that particular magic
2: number? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, as I said before, we, we started wanting to create a, a toilet paper company that was Nonprofit, so it donated a hundred percent of its profits. But, but the initial goal wasn't to you know donate all of our money. Our initial goal was actually to create the most impact that we possibly could. And when we zoomed out, you know, with the help of a bunch of great kind of advisors and mentors, we realized that actually donating a hundred percent of our profits could hold us back because of the challenges of of scaling nonprofit businesses that you know ultimately end up being reliant on um, donations or on um, you know debt capital which which makes the business less scalable as it grows sorry less stable as it grows and so the the realization that we had was that we could change that from being 100% of profits to something that allowed us to reinvest some of our profits back into the business and to you know give us this um, ability to sell equity in the business at some point in the future and to um, align the incentives of our team with you know the growth of the business over time and we thought that if we landed on 50% it told our customers that you know, the reason why we exist is because of the sanitation problem you know that's why we're donating such a huge percentage of our profits um it's it's not to to make us money that's not why we want to get started it's to try and solve this problem um and um at the same time you know really start to solve a lot of those those challenges that i think come with with models that are donating 100% of profits and we thought that if we could get that right, we'd be able to build a business that was at least twice as big by donating half of our profits rather than 100% of them and therefore have more impact over time. And I think that's certainly kind of played out over the last you know, five or so years. I think we're now at a scale that would have been very, very hard to achieve had we had we stuck with the 100% profit donation model in the first place. And hopefully, we'll be able to you know, get to a much, much bigger scale in the future as well. We've got more insights
1: from Simon Griffiths coming up after this short commercial break.
0: Welcome back, Simon Griffiths. Now, who gives a crap that's not your first foray into social, social entrepreneurship? But uh, who gives a crap is the venture that really took off. What do you think it was about who gives a crap that has made it so successful while your other enterprises not so much?
2: Um, I think the, you know, first of all, you know, working with, um, with a direct consumer model of a product that everyone, literally, you know, everyone in Australia uses um, and and overseas as well, not everyone in the world, but, you know, in the US, UK, Europe, um, working with a product that everyone uses that has that direct consumer model allows you to achieve internet scale. And that's something that is very difficult to do with a bricks and mortar business, which was the one that that I worked on before this. Um, So I think that was kind of a key part of it. And the other key part of it is, is creating, you know, what we think of as this product brand cause lockup. So the idea of working with toilet paper, using the profits to build toilets and calling it gives a crap that creates this package that, you know, when people hear about it for the first time, it makes them laugh. And they also often say, I can't believe no one's done this before. And those two things combined make them much more likely to want to tell someone else about it. Um, And so when you when you get that sort of a response you know that you've got a product that has the potential to have strong word of mouth and you know what's called a viral coefficient that that enables you to have um, you know technically what's called product-led growth where you're able to to use your product to help find new customers um, which has been a big part of our success.
0: Mm. Uh, speaking of new customers Covid. i mean the the pandemic obviously delivered a huge opportunity for who gives a crap as all of the shelves in the supermarkets were emptied as people were panic buying their toilet paper so i imagine there was massive growth during that time but what kind of strain did that actually put on the business because of supply chains and (laughs) being discovered by all these consumers and now that that's kind of all quieted down how many of them have stuck around as well
2: yeah, I think um, you know, the 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 first few days of the pandemic in in Australia, those first few days of March 2020 were, were pretty wild. I think on the first the of March we did sort of a two times regular day of sales. On the second of March, we did a five times day of sales, and the third of March we did a 12 times day of sales. On the fourth of March, we were going to do a 30 to 40 times regular day of sales. So selling more than a month of toilet paper in a day. And I think at our peak, selling about 28 rolls of toilet paper every second, which made oh. us the largest retailer of toilet paper in Australia at that moment in time. <laughs> so outselling Coles and Woolworths. Um, and the, you know, when we, when we jumped online to try to figure out where this exponential growth had come from, we saw that our customers were seeing photographs of empty supermarket shelves on social media and they were saying, "Why are you buying toilet paper from the supermarkets when you could be buying from these guys and, and look at the positive social and environmental impact that they help me to have, you know, on the world?" Um, and so we had thousands and thousands of social media mentions that that drove this crazy exponential growth. Um, before we had to move our website to sold out, and we um, you know held on to product for our subscribers and our business customers who want to make sure I never run out of product again. Um, and we turned on an email sign-up so you'd be able to find out when we'd be back in stock and able to fulfill regular orders. We were expecting a few thousand people to sign up for that waitlist, but we actually ended up with more than half a million people on that waitlist, ah. which is kind of mind-boggling when you, you know, think about um, how you will ever be able to get enough inventory to email half a million people saying, hey, we're back in stock, You know, come and check out. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, our team realized at that moment that um, once they were over the shock of kind of what had happened, that if we could figure out how to break the back of this problem and get toilet paper to the most people possible, then we'd be able to hopefully make an amazing donation come end of financial year. And so everyone rolled up their sleeves and started working early mornings and late nights trying to figure out how, you know, how we could could get toilet paper out there into as many households as, as we possibly could. Eventually we figured out we could repack our big boxes with 48 rolls into them into smaller packs. So we had more orders that we could ship out. We hired and trained 25 freelancers in a week to triple our customer service capacity. And then we set up a, a secret invitation only version of our website and invited just enough people through that site every single day to take our warehouses and our careers to their maximum limits, basically before the wheels would fall off. Mm. And so we ran, you know, what ended up being this kind of secret online toilet paper club, which was probably the coolest club anywhere in the world. In, in...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's great. I just, I mean, to think that we, a few years ago, none of these sort of innovative solutions would have even, like we wouldn't have been pushed our limits to even go there, you know?
2: Yeah. And so so we, we ran this club for for about eight weeks before we were able to officially come back in stock. And then as we ran up to the end of the financial year, we were able to make a $5.85 million donation, which was kind of the, you know, the pat on the back and the icing on the cake for everyone's hard work that had gone into to getting us up to that point. So, I mean, that was that was an amazing kind of period for for the team. I think everyone said it was it was the most exhausted, but also the most exhilarated they'd ever been at work, which was a pretty good summary. And I think, you know, at one point, we were doing what was called the pajama handover, where there was two people—one in Melbourne and one in New York—and every morning and evening they'd hand over, you know, the keys to the castle of how many emails to send out and how many orders are shipped and, and everything else um, in their pajamas. Um, so, it was, you know, seven AM in in Melbourne and um, you know eleven PM in New York or whatever it was, and and every day they'd um, they'd they'd do this pajama handover morning and evening to allow us to run 24 seven around the clock, which was, um, yeah, just, just amazing. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there was that side of it. I think the, what we saw after that was, I think, August, September of 2020, that was when everyone had these pantries that were full of toilet paper, you know, there was toilet paper under the bed, there was toilet paper in everyone's cupboards. And as a result, we saw the whole category sales kind of soften for a few months before picking up and sort of getting back to normal. And we found that, you know, your, your question, did the customer stick around? We found that um, our cohort performance through that period was was just as good as what we've seen through, you know, most other um, periods throughout the years before and after. So those customers definitely did stick around, which was amazing. And I think they really got to have a taste for how we think about um, our customer service because our NPS, you know, just went up through the roof as a result of the way that we managed the waiting list and keeping people informed with what was going on, um, which helped to sort of, you know, deepen that, the, the strength of that customer relationship. Um, so yeah, super, super, challenging, interesting kind of period for us. And then I think we rolled into 2021, which, you know, was the year of supply chain challenges that I think the world's kind of emerging from now, but, um, it, it, that was probably the hardest year for us because the, um, the number of challenges that came, you know, one after another and just sort of ne- seemed never-ending was, um, was yeah, a, a big challenge for the team to work through.
1: Cool. Yeah, no, I will just note that you said NPS, NPS for anyone listening and that's net promoter score and that is a metric that um, it kind of measures customer loyalty and your customer service. And trust.
2: Yeah. Yeah, So I think, you know, the like everyone talks about, I think Tesla's MPS was like 96 or something, which is, you know, astronomically high. I think um, a good MPS is something above sort of 50 um, through that COVID period. We were in the low 90s, which was mm. kind of mind boggling to to see that happen. We normally have a very good MPS, but 90s is just exceptional. Yeah.
1: So how does that, um, I want to talk about other numbers that are really important. The most important numbers to you, I guess, would be the impact, like what it looks like in the toilets and the sanitation and what kind of impact it does 5.8 million get you?
2: Yeah, I think the, the um, you know, the, one of the things that we find challenging is that we want to have the most impact that we possibly can and we know that that means that when we're donating money, we're not saying to the person we're donating to, "Hey, you can only use this money to build that specific toilet block over there," because if we know that we do that, then they're not going to be able to, you know, find a new toilet block that's even more cost-effective, or to, you know, pay for the petrol in their car that they need to in order to get their team to be able to get to um, the next meeting. That is where they unlock, you know, um, a new funding round or, or something along those along those lines. And so the way that we give funds, instead of restricting how the funds can be spent, we give what's called unrestricted funding, where we're saying, look, you have an amazing track record. You know more about building toilets than we do and how to maximize the impact from every dollar that you have in the bank. So we trust that you're going to maximize the impact for all of our donations that we give you. But unfortunately, it means that we also can't say, hey, we have built that specific toilet block over there that services 2000 people. And that one over there that services 3000 people. And so we can't put a specific number of people that we've helped, um, onto, you know, the donations that we've given or tie the specific number of people to the donations that we've given. And that's this challenge that we wrestle with because we'd love to be able to do that from a marketing perspective. But we also know that if we did do that, we'd be giving money in a way that, that, um, you know, essentially hamstringed the, the organizations that we were giving to, Um, and that's, um, yeah, something that we, we, you know, really don't want to do. Um, so the, the way that we think about donations or, you know, the impact that we have is by, by keeping track of the money that we've donated and then the, you know, making sure that the organizations that we're funding are continuing to have great lasting impact over time as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Numbers don't always tell the full story. So there was another upheaval in your life during this time, you, um, expanded your family Um, how has that, how has become, how has, you know, being a father and also you're running your business, how has that changed how you view the world?
2: Um, uh, how's it changed how I view the world? I mean, I think, um, uh, it means I don't get out, uh, you know, out as often anymore. So my world is a little bit more insular and probably a little bit more digital than it was before. We've always been a remote first company, um, but also, you know, prioritize, spending time with our team face-to-face so that we can build, you know, deep relationships that we rely upon when we're working together in a digital world. Um, and so our family, you know, is very lucky to be able to to spend time in Australia, but also spend a few months in the middle of the year in the U S working with our American team, which has been fantastic. Um, and I think, you know, doing, doing that and, um, being able to kind of see our kids grow up, um, in a world that's rapidly changing, I think is, is slightly terrifying, um, you know, in part because of the impacts that we're seeing now with, with climate change and with, you know, the amount of plastic that's washing up on beaches and, and all that sort of stuff, but also in terms of the changes that have happened with technology. And, you know, I think any, any parent with young kids these days is thinking about how amazing it was to have a childhood without social media and how, you know, tough it's going to be for our kids when they go through um, their teenage years and have to figure out how they navigate what their digital personalities are going to look like. Um, so, you know, I think uh, is that level of angst kind of any different to what it was a generation ago? I don't know. You know, like I think climate change is obviously um, a much bigger deal now and, um, you know, the the impacts of that are going to be much more catastrophic. But, but I think that it's, you know, probably natural for parents that, um, that, you know, in any decade to be kind of worried about what that future looks like for their kids. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one.
0: Mm. So I guess something that has happened because of, like you mentioned, climate change and, um, you know, issues being so much more in the forefront now than probably they were, you know, a generation ago Um. The consequence of that is, you know, there's so many more social enterprises, so many more businesses being built around a mantra of um, doing good, you know, being part of B Corp, that sort of thing. Do you think that it's helping build a more inclusive economy? And what do you think is driving the trend apart from issues being so much in everyone's faces these days?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think what's driving the trend is um, is this shift in consumer sentiment. And, um, you know, our, our business exists because people want to be able to spend their money in ways that they couldn't do 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and that shift in consumer sentiment, I think, is growing because people are realising that, that it is up to not just governments, not just businesses, but also to individuals to, to take action and to make changes. And if we're truly going to create you know the future that we want to live in it's going to take all three of those you know individuals businesses and governments to to make change to create a better version of the world Um, and so this shift in consumer sentiment i think is only going to continue to grow which is super exciting when you think about the sort of um, opportunities and innovation that it opens up for businesses that are thinking about how they embed you know purpose and um Impact, whether that's social or environmental, into you know the the products that they're bringing out into the world. We've talked quite a lot about
1: you know growing that impact and you know being able to have the funds to do so. Uh, I know that you you did a raise of forty one point five million from outside investors last year, well, uh, but before this you'd pretty much bootstrap the business. Why was it time to open it up? Um, is it really is it that that desire you have you have particular
2: goals with your impact? Is that is that why? Yeah, I mean the you know the 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 problem we're trying to solve is massive. There's you know two billion people without access to adequate sanitation today, um, and so we're incredibly proud of the donations that we've made. You know now over ten million dollars, but um, our donations realistically have to be up into the hundreds of millions of dollars or even the billions of dollars each year in order to truly make a dent on the problem that we're trying to solve. And we recognize that we just couldn't do that by bootstrapping the business and by you know, running on a very small amount of cash in the bank, we had to. Um, it was time to you know change the way that we thought about our operating um, structure and and rhythm in order to um, to allow us to unlock the next layer of scale that that we were going to find hard to achieve by ourselves. And so for us, it was part about the capital and then part about putting the right people around the business who um, had a lot of experience building amazing businesses and brands to. Help us think through some of the really challenging problems that we were going to, to you know, come up against. Um, and so, a great example of that is our, our lead investor, um, Velinvest. You know, they've played a really instrumental role in helping Oatly internationalise their brand, and now Tony's Chocolonely that's come to Australia in the last you know, six to twelve months as well. Um, and so, we knew that they had a lot of experience solving a lot of the challenges that that we knew were going to to come up for us in the next. Um, few years and it's been great kind of having that you know those those um, I don't want to say old heads around the table because I think the the um, team that we work with are, are younger than us but but you know very experienced um, hands to, to help us think about some of those challenges and make sure that we're we're approaching things in the right way so yeah definitely been a, a great part of our, our growth story.
0: Mm. So um, speaking of that experience let's just wrap up today's chat with um a little bit of advice so if you look back at entrepreneur simon griffiths from say 10 12 15 years ago what advice would you give him
2: um, i would i would just say keep going i think that you know entrepreneurship is is part about good ideas it's part about luck and and being in the right place at the right time but the reality is that um, you know in order to to find the right good idea, you have to put enough things out into the world to, you know, have enough, um, throw enough darts to be able to have one hit the bullseye and hitting the bullseye is part from, you know, getting slightly better at aiming each time. And it's part from that little bit of extra luck in a moment where you really need it. Um, and so, yeah, put enough shots on goal to make sure that you, you get one that, that falls straight into the back of the net.
1: That is Fantastic advice to end on. I am going to be throwing multiple golden like uh, golden tipped darts on a dartboard, uh, metaphorically, <laughs> see what happens. Uh, Simon Griffiths, thank you so much for joining us today on First Act.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's been great to chat.
1: And thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, join us next week for another fantastic First Act conversation. We can't wait to bring it to you. Bye. Bye.